This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, I'm Matt Chorley and this is Politics Without the Boring Bits, a brand new look for the Red Box podcast. It's all the same features, but now with my big fat face on the logo. On today's episode, every month we carry out a focus group exactly like the political parties to take the temperature of Britain. So today we take a look at a year in focus groups with former number 10 pollster James Johnson, a really fascinating dive into how the language they use about Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer has changed. Before that, a little teaser of this week's episode of the How to Win an Election podcast. Peter Madison, Daniel Finkelstein and Polly McKenzie on the art of jokes. And if you like what you hear, you can join me for Politics About the Boring Bits live on Times Radio, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker or download the Times Radio app. That's Politics Without the Boring Bits, weekdays from 10. A big night in Westminster as Rishi Sunak invited lobby journalists in for drinks. He only stayed for half an hour, though, so, uh, I don't know, maybe he had a helicopter to catch. Uh, before scarpering, he did confirm when the election is going to be. He said it will be next year. So that's something. Put that in your diaries. It means there won't be an election campaign over next Christmas, uh, which is probably just as well, because Royal Mail wouldn't deliver any of the leaflets while they were prioritising parcels. Uh, Rishi Sinak also uh, made what can only be described as some jokes. He said he'd been singing Christmas carols in number 10, including, O come Tory faithful, I saw three ships, not on my watch, and away in a star chamber. Yeah, he was doing Away in a Star Chamber, uh, uh, Rishi Sunak. Really funny, really funny. Uh, which reminds me that on Friday, we will be doing our annual 12 Days of Political Christmas. 12 Days of Political Christmas. So if you want to get in early with your suggestions, we want 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 8. So, you know, five Tory families and all that. Uh, email me, matt at times.radio, matt at times.radio, with your 12 Days of Political Christmas. And in fact, talking of jokes, that's the subject of this week's How to Win an Election. People after the 97 election were turning up in reception, trying to get paid. Candidates are offering tea with Peter Mandelson. Dinner with Tim Farron goes for less money. (laughs) 
Yes, here we go again then. It's How to Win an Election, your insider's guide to the huge political year ahead. I'm still Matt Chorley and I'm still joined by new Labour mastermind Peter Madison, Polly McKenzie, who's Director of Policy for Nick Clegg in the Coalition, and Tory Brainbox, Daniel Finkelstein. Uh, get in touch uh, with all your questions and queries and complaints. You can email us howtowin at thetimes.co.uk, howtowin at thetimes.co.uk. Are we all well? Oh well, really well. So excited about Christmas. Are you? You sound yeah. weary, Matt, of being Matt Jolly, which worries me. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a grim inevitability of it that that will continue. Uh, right. So we're not going to be weary today. We're going to have fun today because there's a sort of there is going to be a Boxing Day special bonus episode over the Christmas break. But we thought it is the period of uh, cracker jokes, and every you know there's a, there's an art to telling political jokes, and we've heard quite a lot recently, particularly from Keir Starmer. The Prime Minister spent this week arguing about an ancient relic that only a tiny minority of the British public have any interest in. Mr Speaker, that's enough about the Tory party. So, Peter, does it matter that Keir Starmer uh, tells terrible jokes? I don't think he does tell terrible jokes. He's very amusing in private. He's always been a bit subdued, on the other hand, in public, and now he's sort of coming out, as it were. So I think that's very good news for everybody. And I think that to cheer people up at PMQs and tell a few jokes and mock the Prime Minister, I mean, what is there not to like? They have to be good, though, don't they, don't they? Too. I mean, I, I, I've been Gosh, responsible. So fussy. I must admit, for quite a few poor jokes. A high spot for me was when Theresa May became uh, prime minister, and that was a high spot. Uh, what for you personally? There was a PMQ oh, joke. Please, mate. <laughs> a high spot. It's for just you like speaking Theresa German. May. I've got, I've got you know my stories at the end of the sentence. Um, the. the uh, Theresa May told a joke in her first Prime Minister's Questions, which was widely panned, and the Times decided it was going to do a uh, an article about how William Hague had told these excellent uh, jokes, and they rang me up uh, so that I could say how excellent William Hague's jokes were by comparison with the joke she'd just told. The unfortunate thing was that I'd also written the joke she'd just told, the bad one, <laughs> as well as the what other ones, it? and Remind I had to admit, I can't, it was about trains, and I cannot now remember it. A lot of joke telling first of all it's got it's about the moment that you tell it it's about how spontaneous it seems uh, it's about people's reaction to you so that William Hay could tell a joke and it would work brilliantly it would land brilliantly someone else would tell the same joke it would land terribly because people weren't expecting to do it if you if you're too obviously prepped for it what might come out as a quip sounds terrible when it's prepared uh, that's what happened on this occasion. Have you written any jokes, uh, Rishi Sunak? <laughs> I'm not. Uh, the, the thing about joke telling is an interesting thing. And I, there's an ethical thing I think here because I was thinking about this before. You know, my view is that if I ever do provide jokes to politicians, generally you speaking, you can't steal the authorship. Yeah, generally speaking, it's for them. The only time I really objected actually was when the Sunday Times ran a story in which a number of William Hague's jokes, which actually were ones that I'd helped him with um, were ascribed to someone else completely my view is that after about 10 years uh, with the permission of the person involved you probably can uh, <laughs> the statute you know, limitations yeah, yeah. but at the time you really you really uh, can't they're about helping somebody to make their speeches better and um, you know uh, uh, make a point get over with and I do think they matter uh, in Prime Minister's questions it can matter a lot Polly Ed Davey funny man uh, uh no I mean Ed, Ed is delightful 
uh, kind, generous, sincere, but he's sort of so sincere. I don't know if you've noticed, he really furrows his brow when he speaks because he's just, he's painfully, painfully sincere. But I think Danny's onto something because jokes sometimes work sort of primarily because of the context. Right. You know, politics is full of these weird contexts where jokes that are not funny can somehow work for sort of morale. That's certainly true in Prime Minister's Questions where basically it's as if everyone's taking amphetamines and is sort of like jeery, jowly, like we... Like, and, and, and so they will do that, the call and response thing sometimes, you know, where it's like, I don't know, police numbers up, nurses up. And you just think... I'm so painfully embarrassed, yeah. right? But somehow there it works. It sort of around. sounds like a joke. It's got all yeah. the component parts. It, I mean, but, Robin but, Cook, by the way, just on just on the point that you're making, that's absolutely right, Polly. And I remember when Robin Cook went around a tour of different places and he kept on falling out with people. We worked on a joke that for was William India, Hague. And, India and Pakistan. Yes, yeah, so we worked on a joke, and uh, I had the idea that we could say that he could create an ugly scene in a room by himself that was vetoed <laughs> on the grounds that it was un, you know it was uh, it was mean. Uh, and so we we had the end of the joke had no punchline, uh, and we eventually said, well, look, let's just put uh, let don't book it, Robin Cook it. It's not funny, but. That's where the punchline because goes. It, because well, we for, ran out of time for younger listeners. It was Thomas Cook it exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We didn't. We ran out of time. William just had to deliver that line. <laughs> we didn't ever come up with a punchline. Get it brought the house down for exactly the reasons that Polly said. It was in the place where the punchline was supposed to go. People knew it was a punchline, so they laughed. Now, I would say, not yes. that you're the representative of Ed Davy, but you have worked with him before. In fact, he was your first boss. Um, I quite like his stupid stunts. The things he does, the, the can, and because he does it with the air of. This is That's because you worked on regional papers, right? Like thin, thin, you know, rather rather than rather than taking himself too seriously, he's realised he leans into these things and he gets in the papers if he's opening a door or setting off a cannon. You know, they're visual jokes rather than you know verbal ones. I, I think that's right. It, there's a sort of daytime TV vibe uh, about them that works, but but you wouldn't call them jokes, right? Like, no, it, you just sort of. Uh, cringing it's time to along. show Rishi soon at the door while opening a, a blue door it's quite good well yeah but it's not burst the bubble the um was it time to yeah burst the balloon burst the bubble the tall bubble it's funny because you can't believe they actually, no. they actually I liked the one when he drove through a, some blue hay bells in an orange digger that was good I must say Matt ball. is very easily pleased <laughs> very easily amused <laughs> Um, does it, Matt? Do you, does it? We'll come in a minute to the uh, the question. You know, when you've been involved in these things, does it make any difference that you know serious times or in serious times, serious economic times, serious global times? Do you think voters want a funny? Because you know, Rishi Sunak, you wouldn't think. Oh, if we invite the Sunaks and the Starmers around, we're going to have a right laugh at dinner necessarily. Does that matter? But that's not what the joke is for. Again, if you're talking about PMQs or you're talking about party conference, the mm. joke is to build a sense of camaraderie and loyalty amongst your in-group. And then on those rare occasions that a joke really cuts through, it is because it says something that is in line with your actual kind of electoral strategy. Um, it's also aimed for the public. You want the public to if nod it along. Cuts through, but you most want of the man don't. and woman, the informed man and woman in the pub, to hear it and nod along and say, "My God, he got that right." You know, but, but, but it's because so it's, it's not just for your own side. No, no, but that's it's those cut-through jokes, right? It's because they are essentially a memorable soundbite, and they're more memorable because they're 
they're witty. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, like Cameron saying to Blair, you know, he was the future once. It's not rolling in the aisles funny, but it it it's lands important. on the message. It's important also that it's mocking and not insulting. Yeah. I and mean, you want to deride your opponent. You don't want to rubbish your opponent because the man and woman in the pub won't like it. They that's won't not along. You, you want it. You want it also to demonstrate that the person that's telling it is witty, sharp, intelligent, confident, incisive, yeah. confident. There, there's a, Nick, Richard Nixon is famously supposed to have said uh, to to Ted Sorensen, who uh, was a Nix, you know a Kennedy's advisor, that he was really jealous of Kennedy's inaugural speech, which Sorensen had written. So Sorensen said to him, uh, "You mean the bit?" Ask not, you know, what you can do for your country. And he and uh, Nixon says, no, no, not that bit. The bit where he said, I do solemnly swear. Right? <laughs> very funny uh, joke. Anyway, this was ascribed to Nixon, very witty Nixon. Odd, because Nixon really wasn't witty. Anyway, it turned out years later that Sorensen had just made that joke up. Uh, Nixon hadn't said anything of the sort, and he regretted it, because it made Nixon look like he was, in fact, very funny. But, in fact, Nixon, one of yeah, the characteristics yeah, yeah. of Nixon, he really wasn't. Um, so I, I, the, one of the reasons you do it is to demonstrate... The person is, you know, got a really sharp sense of humour. But it can go wrong if they haven't and it looks terrible. Or if the jokes are are terrible themselves. I remember going to a party conference. You'll all have had this experience of people providing jokes from outside. I don't know whether you've had this party, but I once was given a long list of jokes by Ken Dodd <laughs> to, uh, for William Hague's speech. They were all absolutely... T- the ones that weren't terrible, because they were, you know, obviously he's very funny, were just unusable politically, because they were, you know, they, they made jokes that politician couldn't but actually But they all just use. diddy me not and all that <laughs> and business. Were, and I, I t- Sebco agreed that he would go back to Ken Dodd and tell him that we couldn't use any of them. I didn't actually have to do that. God, it's amazing, because when you... Because the other week we, we had Mike back from the Wombles, and it's extraordinary when you think, this is the, uh, you know, going into the turn of the, the millennium. Tourist, so they, the tourists had um the tories have had you know shirley bassey jimmy tarbuck at the time certainly i believe you know um kind of mike reed mike well that sort of uh and and let's bomb russia whereas the labor party had sort of billy bragg paul weller it was like much cooler but with smaller audiences basically (laughs) um (laughs) smaller i think is generous (laughs) (laughs) i don't know about what what about the liberal did the liberal democrats have or the, or the, I suppose the Women's Equality Party did. Well, yeah, that had Sandy Toxvig. But actually, the reason I had Sandy Toxvig's email address was because she had, on one occasion, provided Nick Clegg with a joke of of some sort, along with some of the sort of behind the scenes news quiz type people. And and you would also get lots of very peculiar people writing in with really quite lengthy jokes and 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 you know most of them are terrible but as i say most of the time especially for a party conference speech it doesn't really matter because you've just you've got to have something to add add the light to the shade of the conference speech or it's boring uh, much better if you can come up with a funny joke but you know sometimes sometimes you it's can't. also good for morale as well don't forget you can catch the full episode of how to win an election wherever you're listening to this podcast up next it's a year in focus scripts 
Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. The Big Thing. Every month here on Times Radio, we carry out a focus group, exactly like the sort of focus groups the political parties are carrying out all the time. Now, I don't chair them because I wouldn't know what I was doing. They're always chaired by James Johnson, now from JL Partners, but a former Downing Street pollster and focus grouper. So what we thought we'd do is we come to the end of 2023, is look back over how the views of voters have evolved from all the groups we've done, but also dig in a bit more to exactly what is the point of us doing this every month. Well, who better ask than James Johnson himself? Hello. Uh, which, uh, well, James, let's start, as we always like to start, with our legal disclaimer. What is a focus group and what is not? We should quiz viewers on this, Matt, get them to recite it. It's a, a focus group is a collection of people, six to eight uh, individuals, it's not meant to be representative. It's not a representative poll. It is a ability to dive deeper into the contours of the polling. What do people sort of say and, and think about underneath the opinions they're giving in the, in, in the polls? And politicians love them because it allows them to test messages, work out in more detail how people are sort of talking and, th- and thinking and feeling, and really sort of get their sample of talking to normal people without having to necessarily do so themselves. And in a more controlled way, I suppose, than what people are talking about, you know, in constituency surgeries, talk to their MPs or talk to journalists like me if I go out and vox pop in the street. You know, what you get is to you get to mould the type of voter that you have in these groups. Yeah, exactly. So I always remember that Brexit docudrama where you know benedict cumberbatch played dominic cummings um a few years ago and they had a focus group in that you know dramatized and they had six people in there and they're all fighting because they all had massively different views and i think they ended up almost coming to blows it was a most inaccurate representation of a focus group sorry to be boring sorry to be boring uh, but actually focus groups are deliberately recruited to have people of similar views and the reason is is because you don't want to spend 90 minutes having a bust up you know, you want to dig deeper into that particular group. Now, they might have disagreements on specifics, but it is designed as that deeper dive. And then the second thing that makes them different from an MP going and knocking on the doors or, or whatever is that the focus group respondents, when they sort of sign up, they are uh, not necessarily told who it's for. And obviously, polit- political parties, they can go in, they can do a market research exercise without giving away that it's the Tories or the Labour listening to them and trying to find out what they think. All right, so give us some examples then of the sort of real-life examples of where either a message has been tested in a focus group, uh, which has then become a real thing, you know, and uh, lots of talk- lots of things that people say in focus groups then end up in messaging. So for in your time working in politics, give us a 
some examples of uh, of how focus groups have have played that part yeah well my favorite example is quite early on in the Theresa May Premiership when she was trying to work out how to respond to Nicola Sturgeon trying to go for a second independence referendum. And I was dispatched up to to Glasgow to talk to uh, voters who were basically pro-independence, but not necessarily pro-second referendum. And we dug into why that was. And uh, firstly, it was a really good example of how focus groups work because there were lots of sort of uh, uh, pre-concocted messages that Number 10 and the Conservative Party had drawn up um, that we tested. But actually, the one that what really worked was something that came up naturally in the group, which was this frustration that the SNP were focusing on independence rather than on public services and schools and and the NHS, etc. in Scotland itself. So that's warning number one is, you know, focus groups, by just going and listening, they tell you more than someone drawing up messages in number 10 or a boardroom or wherever would be able to would be able to come up with and uh, number 2 in terms of the real life impact in that glaswegian front room once they'd got over taking the mick out of my accent <laughs> uh, uh, one person said to me nicola sturgeon she just has tunnel vision she has tunnel vision she's only focused on on independence nothing else and uh, i always think the chap in that focus group who said that must have been quite bewildered the next day because uh, Theresa May had a speech lined up and she said Nicola Sturgeon has tunnel vision. The tunnel vision that the SNP has shown today is deeply regrettable. It sets Scotland on a course for more uncertainty and division, creating huge uncertainty. And this is at a time when the evidence is that the Scottish people, majority of the Scottish people, do not want a second independence referendum. And that ended up leading uh, the bulletins. In fact, it was the top story on BBC on BBC News. So now focus groups are not always so literal. But that is an example where, you know, the messaging reflected in the reality. And we've seen that in lots of ways, you know, with Get Brexit Done was born out of the fact that people kept saying, just get it done, just stop talking about it. And the beauty of that, I suppose, is that it's a phrase that a normal person has said just in conversation. So it's going to sound more realistic than the sort of thing that might be drawn up by you know clever people with flip charts and uh, before you know it, you've got a sort of gobbledygook of Britain's stronger economy in a place in the Europe you know yeah. sort of thing just a sort of buzzword like salad uh, was actually if you can capture what you you know what you want to capture in any political messaging is to sound like you've just thought of it and actually using the language of normal people is is a really important way of doing that. Okay, right, let's jump in then to some of the focus groups that we've had this year and the evolution of the way that normal people have been talking about politics. Now, we should stress, obviously, there are different people, different people in different groups. The group we had in January is different to the group we had in June, which is different to the group in November. And then there are also different types of voters. There are sometimes people who voted Tory and Labour in 2019 and now say they're undecided. Sometimes it's that they voted Tory last time and now they've switched to Labour. You know, one month we did people who were in favour of the SNP but weren't sure about another independence referendum. So it's always uh, different uh, groups. But this is just quite an interesting way to sort of take a temperature test once a month, see what people are actually saying about politics. So let's go back then to the first group we had way back in January. What were they saying about Rishi Sunak? 
bodies came in into a sinking ship, essentially. And I've got no reason to not trust trust them, really. He's inherited a mess. If it's a year to the next election, he's got a time to put a mandate plan and strategy together. There is a plan. I can trust him on that. Nothing massive against Rishi at the minute, but I think seatbelt thing, the, you know, not not necessarily been totally honest about certain things. You know, it's really was. It's what's so great about this is that it takes us back to a political time that's quite hard to remember. Even though it was the beginning of the year, it's just a completely different political mood. So that group was in January, and a reminder of that sense of the benefit of the doubt. He picked up at a really hard time. I think you know, even in those that group later on said, "Well, look, he might be rich." That means he's he's not in it for the money. He's doing it for the right reasons. They were sort of uh, wishing him well while being not terribly convinced by Keir Starmer. Yeah, absolutely. And goodness, a bit of a blast in the past there about referencing the seatbelt, which I think referred to Rishi Sunak not wearing a seatbelt in a in a clip. I think that'd be the least of his worries now. Yeah, look, that that was around the time at the start of the year of that five pledges speech where Rishi Sunak set out his his plan. And uh, although it took a while. For for the five pleasures to sink in, you know, that generated this feeling that perhaps this was the serious new man on the block. Okay, so that was January. Let's jump then to our most recent group, literally just right at the end of last month. Again, it's obviously a different group of people, but selected somewhere, some were people who voted Tories now switched to Labour, others undecided. So uh, this is what our focus group was saying about Rishi Sunak in November. Failed. Meek. Money, upper class. Out of touch, uh, uninspiring and inconsistent. Fence-sitting, appeaser. A bit of a letdown from what I were expecting. Nothing positive in November, having been quite warm towards him. You know, there was clearly a window of opportunity there for Rishi Sunak back in January. Yeah, at the core of this is that if you set out in January, five pledges are going to deliver by December and then only deliver one of them, this is where opinion ends up but there's other things happening as well and i think the main thing there is is weak fence sitter they they don't feel like rishi sunak is present and that he is standing up for britain or the british people at the right moments and there are a few moments in the year that 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 crystallize that for people one of them was you know during the um pro palestine protests on remembrance weekend PM wasn't there, wasn't seen to be present. Uh, They didn't necessarily want him to ban marches or anything, but they wanted that bit of leadership. So I think that's a huge, um, that's a huge issue for Rishi Sunak, that that weakness thing, because once people start thinking you're, you're weak, then they start, you know, thinking that you can't get anything done for them. And that's what's getting him. It's, it's weakness and delivery. And there's one more thing as well, Matt, which is background. Now, I think this is absolutely crucial because as we heard in January, people are not necessarily anti-politician because they're rich. They had all the same facts about Rishi Sunak's wealth in January as they do now in December. But they went from saying it's a it's neutral, even potentially a positive, because he's in it for the right reasons, to now saying it's a negative. Why is that? Well, I think it's one of those things where wealth only matters when it matters. Once people have taken a negative view of, of you, then it gets added to the list of bad things. It's like Boris Johnson's wallpaper. Remember that? I remember our focus groups in 2021. No one cared about the wallpaper. Come 2022, they all started bringing it up once they'd lost faith in Boris Johnson over Partygate. 
Rishi Sunak's wealth is his Boris's wallpaper, and that is very dangerous for him. And the one, the one that comes up a lot now, Matt, that we didn't hear so much at the time, was this time last year when Rishi Sunak did that Christmas Eve visit to a homeless shelter. And he was chatting to the homeless chap, and I think he said something like, have you considered you know, work in the city or something? That didn't really come up at the time, but as late as October in our focus groups, people were talking about that. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting as well, just what sort of resurfaces in, in people's minds. It goes in there, and then it, it takes a while to, to come back up again. I suppose also as well, social media means that things get dredged up uh, after the event. James, we've looked at how the voters were talking about uh, Rishi Sunak over the course of 2023 and how that sort of the way they were talking about it is sort of deteriorated over the months. Let's then look at the way they were talking about Keir Starmer and see, you know, has that gone in the opposite direction? As you might think if you've been looking at the, the opinion polls and so on. Um, so let's go all the way back to January then and see what the January focus group here on Times Radio was saying about Keir Starmer. I think he will always tell us what we want to hear. I don't know if it's just he's got one of those faces I don't really trust. If the Tories make mistakes, he's straight on it, but he doesn't seem to have any ideas of his own. There's just something about him that I just don't like and I can't put my finger on what it is. He has got one of those faces that, you know, you know, it's not quite warming, but he, he has actually grown on me. Oh, yeah, I remember this group because lots of listeners took exception to this focus on Keir Starmer's face. They all say, well, you know, we should be focusing on, you know, important things, policies and principles and the direction of the country. But, you know, it goes back to the, the thing we were discussing before with, you know, Rishi Sunak. You know, normal people don't spend very long thinking about politics. So, you know, whether or not they think that's a man I could trust, that's a woman who does what she says she's going to do. Those are real quick-fire judgments that are made, and they end up informing a lot about how some people will vote. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know what it is about Keir Starmer's face, but there is this sense of untrustworthiness, and we get that a lot in the groups, don't we? I mean, we get people responding on Twitter saying, yeah, slimy, slippery, smarmy, this is a bit a bit harsh, isn't it? But that is the sense that they have generated of Keir Starmer, including at, at the start of the year. OK, then. So then let's jump ahead. This is a focus group we heard from in June uh, when James asked them to sum up Keir Starmer in a word. Fresh, new. Talks the talk, but can he do the walk? I don't know who it is. I'd say hopeful. I don't know an awful lot about him. I don't really know much about him. I mean, this is amazing, James. I, mean, I didn't actually realise it was still, even as recently as June, we were getting people saying they didn't know who Keir Starmer was, despite he's been around what, in the job for three, more than three and a half years by that point. A reminder again, I suppose, that most people are not following po- politics as closely as we are. And... It's the job of the leader of the opposition to get up every day and pretend that today is day one all over again. Yeah, and, and Keir Starmer, for many voters, will still ha- still has his day one to come. And that will probably be the general election campaign. So that's a really good... Um, that's a really good... It's pretty good news if you're Keir Starmer because those who do know who he is tend to have generated a negative view. Um, so he will be hoping to have that sort of reintroduction moment to the electorate and indeed the first introduction for many others so that don't know factor is really important what i would say though is that there are also many voters who have been aware of what kirstan has been saying and are aware that he's been around for some time 
and they've taken a pretty hostile view of him. And that feels a bit more locked in than, uh, than perhaps it, it might have for, uh, for, for other Labour leaders in the past. OK, now let's um, jump to the group we did last month uh, to get their assessment of Keir Starmer again. I think there was a group, half had voted Tory, half voted Labour in 2019. Uh, some of them were Tories who now said they were undecided and some had switched to Labour. So they're exactly the sort of voters the Tories need to get back, uh, but Keir Starmer needs to hold on to. Just seems very slimy and was underhanded. He seems to want to be something for everyone, which you just can't be. You can't make everyone happy. I just don't feel uh, with Starmer, I could trust what he says. I'm not sure about his principles. It's just all fur coat and no knickers sort of thing. It's this, he talks a good talk, but I worry about the rigour of what he's promising. That group, I think about half of them had said they were voting Labour, James. So I suppose that speaks to the problem that you were saying, that actually people not knowing who you are might sometimes be better than people who do know who you are but have taken against you. Yeah, and there's a few things in there. The first is this sense that he flip-flops, that he says one thing and, and then does the other. Now, that is different from, say, voters' views of Ed Miliband, where they said he flip-flops because he's weak and he's just a bit of a sort of damp rag and you know he doesn't really know what he stands for. With Starmer, it's different. They think it's more calculated. They think he's doing it just to get into power. Boris Johnson's famous Captain Hindsight moniker might be Boris Johnson's best legacy to the Conservative Party. Uh, There might not be many of them, but he's certainly got that because that sense that Keir Starmer also did this in the pandemic in particular comes up again and again and again. Look, you can see what the number 10 strategy was at the start of the year. You know, deliver on the five pledges, contrast to Keir Starmer, who hasn't got this sort of steady sense of purpose to him or the ability to to get things done. Now, number 10 will be hoping that these concerns about Keir Starmer really manifest in an election campaign, even despite the the, the failure to deliver on the on the five pledges. And, and they may well do, but there's two big reasons to be cautious that these necessarily spell the end for Keir Starmer. One is change. And we've had many voters, this Rishi Sunak at the start of a group, Dis Keir Starmer even more at the middle of the group and then by the end of the group saying, oh yeah, I'm still going Labour though because it's time for change. And that's that's key. And I suppose, ultimately, if you look at the headline polls, you know, Labour ahead by, what, 15, 20 points. It's clear that even if people are doing it, you know, saying, I can't stand the man, is slimy, I don't like his face, or whatever it might be, people, a lot of people are currently saying they're going to put a vote in the box for the Labour candidate which it looks like is going to deliver Keir Starmer a decent-sized majority. Yeah, and then that's the second thing. He's not that scary. He might be a bit slippery and a bit, you know, oh, don't like him that much, but he's not seen as a major barrier to them as Corbyn was by the time of the 2019 election. But look, listening to our, our, our focus groups, Matt, you know, I think it does temper that talk about landslide elections for Labour I think, you know, what we can certainly see under the skin of everything is that this is going to be a very lukewarm election, whatever happens. Perhaps not as bad as the the Trump-Biden face-off in America, but voters are not excited by this one. Just finally, James, I'm interested in that evolution of the it's time for a change message. I've got two more clips to play to you. Uh, One is again from that group in January uh, where you're asking... Are Labour ready to take over? And then we'll hear from a group in July. So first of all, this is the group from January. 
I don't think they are ready. I think they would go in with all these great ideas, but I don't think they would be prepared for what it would all entail. And I, I do think Rishi is a man with a plan. I think kind of need to fix the mess first and then they could potentially step in. But I don't think it's the right time. Basically, for me, I think anyone's better than Conservatives at the minute. There's no plan or strategy. I can't see it. The only strategy seems to be to knock the Conservatives at the minute rather than this is what we're going to do to put the country right. So that was the group in January. In that sense of Rishi Sunak as a man with a plan. But, you know, going back to the point you were making earlier on, James, he had just set out his five pledges. He was new in the job, explaining what he was going to do in a way that maybe people felt that Labour hadn't. So now let's jump to the focus group in July. I think it's time for a change. Um, I think people have had enough of like, the current government. I think it's time for a change again. I don't particularly like Keir Starmer as a leader, and I think he's the wrong fit for Labour. But I do think that Conservatives need a shake-up, they need a wake-up call. So actually, James, I suppose that group from July sums up exactly the mood you were talking about, that ultimately a lot of people in the end are going to vote Labour because the time for a change message, I mean, it's such a brilliant phrase because it chips off the tongue. People say it in just normal conversation and it's basically Labour's and every incoming government's election strategy. Yeah, absolutely. And you can sort of hear the the ghost of Gordon Brown in some of that. Uh, you know, the, we get this a lot, a sense that Labour perhaps messed it up last time, so can they be trusted again, especially on the economy? Do they have the readiness? Do they have the numbers? Do they have the, the sums to, to, to know to work all this out? But it also speaks to the wasted opportunity by, by the Conservative Party there. Um, I think when you listen to these groups, if you're a Conservative listening to these groups, you must be sitting there and thinking, my God, this is so winnable. And, and, and you know, this is so winnable. You know, people don't like Keir Starmer. Uh, goodness me, why are we twenty points behind? And the answer is, is that you can you can make changes on on, on legal immigration. You can introduce tax cuts. But if your party and leader doesn't have that confidence of the public, then all the giveaways in the world won't make a difference. So take the legal immigration announcement. Um, now, obviously, it was overshadowed by the the massive own goal on on Miranda on the Wednesday. But when that was announced on the Monday. James cleverly fronted the announcement rather than the Prime Minister. You know, th- that, that almost stopped it from getting the headlines and, and association with the PM that, that they could have had. Take the taxes, the, the income, income tax cut. I think most people will have forgotten that by now. Uh, it wasn't necessarily associated with a strong message and drumroll uh, by the Prime Minister. So the voter of 2024 is very different from the voter of, say, 2010. You know, if we remember Cameron Clegg, uh, Gorham Brown lining up at those TV debates 13 years ago, competence was the order of the day who can manage things best now in 2024 it is about strength says what you mean and gets things done and Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer have to embody that to really make a connection with the voters and I will say one more thing Matt that could upset all of this uh, dynamic that we've been speaking about the man from the jungle Uh, you can hear in these groups there is a desperate urge for another option and uh, it's probably not going to be the Lib Dems. The Greens aren't really on the on, on the field, but we are seeing Reform UK creep up in the polls. Now, whether Nigel Farage allies with those or or just sort of keeps his power to driver after the election, uh, he could have a big impact uh, on voters like this who are, quite frankly, fed up with everyone. Yeah. In reality, though, is it not the case that reform just takes more voters away from the Tories which actually just makes a Labour win 
bigger because it means the Tories are losing to both wings, if you like. Yeah, I think certainly Reform UK takes more votes uh, from from the Tories than Labour. Having said all that, that's what everybody thought ahead of the 2015 general election. Um, and it actually ended up that people who were who would have gone from Tory to Labour were actually going Tory to UKIP instead. And you might see a similar thing happening there. Remember, if you're Keir Starmer, you really want to get these Labour to Tory switchers back at this election because you don't want to lose them for good. You know, you don't want them to sever their relationship with Labour. So you're absolutely right. Reform UK would hurt the Tories more. But for Labour's even medium-term, long-term plans... They want to kiss and make up with the voters of the Red Bull who abandoned them rather than see them drift off to uh, uh, to, to another partner in Nigel Farage. All right then, James, we're coming to the end of the year. You know, New Year's resolutions, New Year predictions and all of that. When's the election going to be? Oh, goodness me. I, people have to pay me for that insight, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I, am of, I am of the view that uh, we're going to be later in the year because I just don't think governments who are 20 points behind decide to go early. Rishi Sunak is... It's many things. I don't think he's a gambling man, and I think he will be waiting until at the end of the year. Well, that's just you know that's just plenty more reason for us to carry on doing our focus groups well into twenty twenty four as well. Uh, James Johnson, lovely to see you. Uh, James, of course, at JL Partners now, uh, former number ten pollster for Theresa May, and uh, look forward to doing it all again uh, next year. James, happy Christmas. Happy Christmas to you, Matt. Love it. Looking forward to many. A very happy Focus Group 2024. Thank you for listening to Politics Without the Boring Bits. Don't forget you can get in touch by emailing me matt at times.radio. If there's anything you want us to do more or less of on the podcast, let us know. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.